Um, I have the privilege of preaching this morning, so I hope that you're going to feel encouraged. And uh, I certainly loved the worship this morning. I just felt God really build me up and strengthen me inside. So thanks, guys. It was really good. Um, but one of the things that we've been doing in the life of the church is we've be- started a series, which we did the first part in June Uh, of this year, which is called Family Matters. And it's a topical sermon series where we're trying to root ourselves as a church family in the A to Z of the gospel so that we can navigate and engage in a meaningful way the changing landscape of um, the culture around us so we can understand it and we can uh, see how we relate as, as Christians. So when we started the the series in June, uh, we explored some of the values that we have as a church, uh, how we are trying to build a culture of love and grace in this place as we celebrate being a multicultural, multi-generational church. And this means creating space for conversations where we can hear each other's stories and journeys. Because all of us are coming from such different backgrounds, such different experiences, that we want to create a space to appreciate how we are all on a journey together. But essentially, we want to see a community that is compassionate as we are rooted in the timeless truth of God's word and his grace. So the second part that we're going to be doing for the next four weeks, um, we are going to look specifically at our identity in God. Uh, what does that mean? Because I think that's one of the things that has so, been so shaken in our society at the moment, is understanding who we are and how we identify ourselves, how we see ourselves. And I want to say that our self-concept is shaped by so many different factors. When we talk about identity, we are talking about the ways in which we've constructed a framework for ourselves to reflect and define who we see ourselves to be. We all find ways of kind of saying, this is me, this is how I see myself. So there are many factors that influence our sense of self. One of the things that we could do is we could have a temporal view of ourselves where it could be based on um, maybe you see yourself, reflect back on your younger self, how you were when you were a child or a young adult, or you, you have that sense of yourself. And then you've got a present tense sense of yourself, how are you doing in your life now? Maybe you're feeling great and you're feeling like you're doing well or you're struggling, and that affects how you see yourself right now. And you might also have a future sense of yourself, your aspirations, what you want to be, how you see your life being. You might also have a contextual view of yourself. Uh, This is where we base our, our sense of self on external factors like our relationships. So I might say my sense of self is that I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a wife, a mother, a friend, a leader, all of those things reflect something with externally, but on how I see myself. Or perhaps on performance. So maybe you're doing really well in something and it makes you feel a certain way about yourself or something that you love doing gives you identity. So I might say I love writing and that's something that makes me feel who I am. Uh, Or it might be about how you fit into a social group or demographic. So I would say, I'm a 53-year-old woman, <laughs> so that might be my, my demographic. 
But all of us have a different thing that we are, um, that make us uniquely us. And no one is the same in, that, in those senses. All those external experiences and influences are different in how we shape and frame our self-concept. We could also say that we could have an individualistic or a communal view of ourselves. And that's often shaped by our, by our cultures, our cultural upbringing. Like statements like, I am valued versus we are valued. The individual versus the collective. And you often see in some cultures there's very much a strong group identity, a sense of we belong to a bigger part. And other cultures, especially in the West, are much more individualistic. It's about me and my rights. I always remember watching a documentary. I can't remember who was the, the person doing the documentary, but it was about Japan. And uh, in, the, in the documentary, there was a, a, a Japanese craftsman, and he was making this beautiful piece of furniture, and he had this lathe, and he was uh, doing the lathe so that he uh, pulled it inwards towards himself. So he's moving the blade towards himself. And I do remember the, the person kind of hosting the documentary said, you know, that's really strange. In my culture, when you're using a sharp knife, you push it away so that you don't cut yourself, so you, you're protecting yourself. And he said, yes, but I'm doing it this way so I can protect others. So it was a very interesting, just that little action reflected a value within that society of individual versus communal. But it's also helpful to understand how concepts of personal identity have evolved over the course of history till modern day. Because we are a product of history. You, you might not know, you might think, oh, I know my life is here and this is how I think and I'm quite unique. But actually, we are a product of centuries of thoughts and understanding and ideas that are passed down all the way through the generations. And wherever we find ourselves now in the 21st century, it's an accumulation of a whole lot of thought processes and philosophies that have been passed down. So during the times of Homer, so we're thinking like 700 BC, and I don't mean Homer Simpson, Homer, uh, the ideals of man were that a man should be a valiant warrior, a hero, and that was what was esteemed as giving someone value and worth, that you were a strong man. I don't know what it said about women, but men were valued as warriors and for their strength. And later then, during the classical Greek period, we have philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. And they began to say that a person's life really makes sense when you see it as part of the order of the universe, that there's an order in the whole of the way the world works and the universe and the spheres. And they said that in order to find a sense of yourself, you had to understand how you fitted into the great order of things. And uh, for, for Plato, it was about the cosmic order. And for Aristotle, it was about the order of everyday life, that your life had a routine and a a place in, in society. That's where you found something of your identity. Um, but in around 350 AD, I hope you don't mind a little history lesson. <laughs> so going like, oh no, is she going through the whole timeline? <laughs> but in around 350 AD, Augustine, you know Augustine of Hippo, um, 
he, he was a wonderful Christian, and he introduced a Christian view that actually a person had a soul. Now, you might think all of these things are things that we just, well, what's so brilliant about that? But in those times, these were new revelations. They were new thoughts. And so he introduced this idea that people have, each person has a soul with which we were able to commune with God. And this also affected how we saw and valued others. And this view that was was held in Christendom for almost a millennium, almost a thousand years, until the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries. And then we get philosophers like Descartes and John Locke, who gave ideas that were beginning to change this basic view of personhood. And from this point on, uh, in philosophical thought, it's really interesting to know the swift disintegration of the concept of how we see ourselves. It starts to change from that point on. Uh, And Descartes said that God and moral values no longer define the order of the universe. God is irrelevant. God is no longer the, the reason why the whole universe holds together. He began to speak about these things. And he said that basically our lives were mechanistic. We're just rational beings. we like machines within this world. And he said the human mind is not part of this material world. It's an it's, it's a immaterial thing that can be above the order of the world. And then for John Locke, he said people could only fully understand the world by engaging with it through our sensory experience. That's how we understand. And he began to introduce this idea that our minds could even begin to analyze our own thoughts. I know you've probably heard the statement, I think, therefore I am. Um, I thought it was Descartes that said that, but it was actually John Locke. Maybe he stole it. But that was his saying, I think, therefore I am. I can understand my, myself through my thoughts and through my personal subjective experience of the world around me. And so that became more important. Experience and your thoughts became more important than a sense of order or objective perspective of the world around us. And in that same period, we have the Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he believed in the inherent goodness of people, which opposed Augustine's biblical view of the, the um, original sin, that all of us need a savior. He said, no, all of us are basically good, and the only reason we might do bad things is because bad company makes us do bad things when we get in with bad company. So that was his view. And then moving on, so we're jumping from the, 16, the 17th and 18th centuries, moving on into the industrial age and the impact of World War I and World War II, which, uh, which was devastating, which destroyed the fabric of society. The modern society started to draw on an existential philosophy in the 19th and 20th centuries. And the view of the existentialists was basically that everybody has this existential angst. This, uh, it's almost like a sense of dread, uh, disorientation, uh, confusion and anxiety, and a view that the world is just absurd and nothing makes sense. 
That is, that is kind of how we entered into the 20th century. People had lost, had become disillusioned. Life just no longer had that sense of order that made sense. Uh, and, and so people had this internal angst. And that's what the existentialists began to identify. But the founder existentialist, Soren Kierkegaard, I'm sure you've heard his name, he said this, he took it even a step further, and he said, each individual not society or religion, is solely responsible for giving meaning to life. You don't find your meaning for life in, 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 a, in your faith or in anything bigger outside yourself. You can find purpose and meaning just by looking inside yourself. And he said that's called true authenticity. So we no longer find the bigger context of the world, but it's impersonal choice and self-centered values. I suppose little phrases that echo that kind of thinking is, you must be true to yourself. Uh, we sometimes say that. And, and I, I think you can mean it in a really good sense, but it's leaning to that sense that actually you can find your own purpose and your own meaning apart from anything else and your context. So in all these evolving philosophies, uh, we move towards where we find ourselves today, the postmodern view of the self in the 20th century. And uh, one of our postmodern sociologists says it's a decentralized, flexible, and pluralistic self in an emerging contemporary society. We are, have a sense of self that is kind of very confused, and I'll unpack it a little bit more. Because there's some things that now, with all this history, this unfolding journey of how we see ourselves, there are things that impact us in how we see ourselves now. One of those things is urbanization and work culture, where, where there's been a breakdown in family life and social structures. Um, we are a consumerist culture, and that defines us what we have, just accumulating things that becomes what defines us. Um, Hyper-reality uh, is a, maybe a term maybe you're familiar with or not, but it's just how our world has become so digital and the experience and engaging with the world, we can no longer see what is real and what is created. And um, um, my son Jesse did a really fun, interesting exercise with us. He had got these animators and artists, and they had basically done... Uh, pictures of different kinds of fruit or household objects. And uh, he showed us two pictures. One was of a banana, and the other one was of a banana. And we had to say which was the real banana and which was a, a graphic digital representation of a banana that an artist had drawn. Do you know that we couldn't tell? And they even showed it to some of the top the people in the in the country, maybe we'd show to you, <laughs> to you, Chris, and they they couldn't tell which was real and which was not real. And this is something that is affecting us. You think that doesn't affect us, but images have become something of what defines ourselves now. And even in the sense of, I know we've spoken in the things of like fake news and and all of those kinds of things that are bound on social media so that we are almost without discernment to see what is truth and what is not true. 
And then another area that has impacted our 21st century is that we are used to, especially as Christians, to have what's called a meta-narrative, a sense of the flow of history and themes that run through history that give us sense of purpose and meaning. But in the 21st century, um, it's almost like people see the end of the meta-narrative. The idea of searching for one truth, for one grand theory by which we can free people from want or oppression is considered out of date. There are now many truths. There's lots of truths. And the question they would say is, how can anyone claim absolute truth? Each person has their own truth. So some of you might be thinking, yeah, I get that. That's very what I understand. And some are going, oh, wow, it's probably to do with your age. You might feel slightly different. But th these are things that how, how our society is today. And uh, one of the things when I was doing my reading, what sociologists are saying, and these are not Christians, these are just people who study the self and hard, hard works, they say the impact of these postmodern perspectives has led to the self-concept being unstable and fragmented. And identity is now just a fictional construct around visual images that I project of myself, which can change according to what feels most authentic for me at the time. That is how we define ourselves. We say, it's my Instagram account with these pictures, that's what defines me, but actually tomorrow I might just change that and present myself in a different way. We've, we've taken a fictional construct and made that who we are. And the other thing that we use that's external to ourselves, we use images, but we also use language. And language has become very important in defining the self in the 21st century. But the thing with the language is that language is also unstable and constantly changing, which further destabilizes the concept of self. So that our identity has become fluid and transitional, just as much as the language used to describe us keeps changing. Um, so there is a constant reinvention of the self as new terminology evolves to describe one's identity. So it's now become imperative to find identity within this language structure by identifying with a label to define the self. So we would say things like, I identify as feminist, or I identify as uh, vegetarian, or, or non-binary, or different words that I use to, to capture my identity. So it seems that this philosophical progression over the centuries has steadily eroded also the authority and the validity of God's word as an answer to this existential angst that pervades society because it has meta-narratives, because it is considered an absolute truth, because it speaks in a way that the, the current understanding of this culture doesn't embrace. It feels very difficult. And it's into this fragmented world of relative truth where reality is defined by one's inner subjectivity rather than external objectivity that the gospel of Jesus speaks. It's still relevant 
today. And more than ever, there is a generation crying out for stability, and the greatest need of every heart is the same as it's always been, to know that I am loved. It doesn't matter what age you live, we all want to know that we are loved. Whatever my perception of reality or the language that I use to define myself or even when I may seem to deny the very truth that will set me free, I need to be loved. And the Bible, I believe, gives a heart to it, an answer to the cry of every fragmented heart. And uh, I read a, the, a Canadian philosopher called Charles Taylor so this is really interesting to me because he's not a Christian. And he said he looked at a comparative study of all these different philosophies and how they um, influence us. And he's, he concludes with these words. He says, against all this blindness and partisan narrowness of all these philosophies, Taylor sees hope implicit in Judeo-Christian theism and its central promise of a divine affirmation of the human. It stands apart. It stands apart because it affirms human life. It affirms identity. It doesn't fragment it and distort it. And that's a conclusion of a secular sociologist. So in this, this is all just a bit of an introduction to the series, really. So in this series that we're going to be looking at, we want to affirm biblical, biblical truth, however its opponents have tried to whittle away its authority by drip-feeding with the meta-narrative of Scripture is no longer relevant. We want to do this by, over the next four weeks, affirming four key elements of the, a biblical view of self that has never changed through all the centuries. And these are simple truths for us to receive with open hearts and allow them to permeate our thinking and our outward living, and our response to those around us. So these are the four things we want to look at. I am loved. I am chosen. I am forgiven. And I am free. Four simple understanding of self that we want to explore over the next four weeks. Because I believe that even with all that we are facing... We all hunger to know those wonderful revelations and truths for our lives. And how am I doing for time? Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, I'm just going to unpack that first one. Have you, have you got grace and energy to sit a little longer? You're doing really well after all that f fact download. So, um, so I want to speak this morning about I am loved. And I'm going to use a verse that I'm sure you could all just say off the top of your heads because you know it so well. You see it on postcard, on placards. When, when I've seen it when people are playing golf with Tiger Woods playing golf. There's always someone with a verse saying John 3.16. <laughs> I'm sure you could say it off, the, off without even thinking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And I know we know that verse so well, but I'm going to unpack it this morning because I believe it helps us to understand that I am loved, that you are loved. So I'm going to start with for God. God is the initiator, the originator of all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end of all things. He had the first word and he'll have the last word. He is the creator of the universe. He sustains all life by the power of his word. He is sovereign over all. He is the almighty king of kings, lord of lords, the unchanging one. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. This God so loved the world. The great God. He so loved the world. In 1 John 4 verse 8 it says, God is love. God cannot but love. It is in his very nature and being to love because that is his essence. And before the world and all its people existed, God's love was expressed in relationship as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Godhead relates to one another through love. Um, and I think they, how the, the Trinity shows love to one another is they try to outdo one another in giving glory to each other. So the father says, I want to glorify my son. And when we read Jesus' words, he says, I want to glorify my father. And the Holy Spirit says, I I'm not, don't want anything about me. I want to glorify Jesus. And Jesus says these words, I must decrease so that the Holy Spirit can increase. They are all about loving each other. They, there is an atmosphere of love in the Trinity. That is the essence of God. He is love. And so when God looked on the world, Jesus says, for God so loved the world, so loved the world, he was filled with compassion and kindness and pity and mercy when he looked upon the world. God, who is infinite, so loved the world because he was moved by compassion in his nature. And this world, he loved this world we've just been describing, this world of human striving and pride and disdain for God, this world that seeks its own way to finding meaning and significance, this world of suffering and cruelty, injustice and unkindness, this world that so hates him in its brokenness, God so loved the world. So loved the world. That he gave. You know, this relationship with God started with his initiative, his act of selflessness. His love compelled him to give. Love always moves towards generosity and sacrifice. It lays down its rights for the one it loves. God demonstrates his love by giving. 
his only begotten son. Now, begotten is an old-fashioned word that we don't really use much today. But Jesus is God's eternally begotten son. He's one with the Father. And as it says in John, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was involved in creation. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Jesus has never had a beginning. He's always been. He is the living word. He's the begotten son. But in the Aramaic, in that that verse, it emphasizes only more than begotten. He is God's only son. Some translations say he's one and only son. There's no one like Jesus. He's the only son. There's only Jesus. There's no one like him. He is the one that God gave to this broken world. In its sin and in its wretchedness, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's no one like him. That whoever, whoever, there's no one excluded. The Christianity is, sometimes people say Christianity is exclusive. No, it's whoever. It doesn't matter what your background is, your age, your education, your job, your family background, your self-concept, your nationality. Whoever, anyone, everyone who believes in him. You know, to believe is, as Anne said this morning, to say, I need you. It's to choose to place your trust in the worthiness of Jesus, to lay aside every prideful reliance and to say, I need you, Jesus. It's to put your hope in him completely as the one who alone can save you. To whoever believes in him shall not perish. When we don't know Jesus, we perish both in this life and we perish in eternity. Our our life wilts away and it becomes more fragmented and lost and our inner being begins to decline without Jesus in this life on earth. We also will not see the promise of eternal life that awaits everyone who believes in him. And there's this promise that you shall not perish, but have eternal life. Um, One of my favorite verses is John 17, verse 3, which says, And this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. The moment that you believe In Jesus, you enter into eternal life. It doesn't start when you die one day. If you think eternal life starts once you've left this mortal coil, what does it say, gone to the fjords like the parrot, that's not when it starts. It starts the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the moment you believe in Jesus. Your spirit is born again by the Spirit of God and you receive an imperishable seed, like I taught last week, an imperishable seed of God's eternal life. 
Because you see, in that verse, it says, and this is eternal life, that you may know God and his Son. That word know is the same word that's used in, the, in Genesis where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve. It's an experiential intimacy that it's saying that eternal life is that you can experience and know the, the God of creation. You can know him intimately. That is what eternal life is. And it starts the moment you are born alive and made alive to him. In, in, the, in the Greek understanding of no, it's always intellectual. The Hebrew always uses no in the sense of experiential. You can know God, and that's what he's promised to us. So I'm going to just end, Wolf, with a question, and then I'd love to pray for us. How do we experience this love? Because I'm sure it's been going in here, but you might be sitting here today and saying, I don't feel that here. I want to read to you Romans 8, Romans 5, verse 1 to 8, which is almost like Paul is unpacking those words of Jesus, for God so loved the world. He kind of like Paul in his wonderful, full way explains and expounds on this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person you might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still stinky sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? And I just want to hone in on verse 5. And hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, this morning, you may have been placing your hope in all kinds of things that make you out trying to find your identity. Maybe it's in your personal possessions. Maybe it's in your social media profile. Maybe it's in the acceptance of others who identify with you. Or maybe it's in your own version of the truth. There's a kind of a hope, a false hope, that will disappoint you. Those things will not give you a sure hope. But in these words, Paul is saying there's something, there's a hope that you can have that is not going to let you down. Jesus won't disappoint you. He's not a sham. He won't make you look like a fool if you put your trust in him. 
This is also not a love that you can earn by saying the right things, by behaving in a socially acceptable way, as if then maybe you'll be worthy. And some people, even I've heard this said sometimes, but some people say, if you didn't have a good dad, you'll never really understand the love of the father. That's not true. It's got nothing to do with your family, whether you had a good family or a difficult family. That's not how this works. This love is from God, and he pours it into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to know and experience the love of God. You don't have to worry if you've got the right, you think you've got the right credentials. Your credentials are to put your trust in him and what he will do. All we have to do is open our hearts to receive, and it's something that God does. It's not a mental ascent, it's an experience. It's a personal encounter with God and his bounteous love that he lavishes on us. So some of us here today may have never experienced this love of God. And you're thinking, I just wonder what that's like. I'd love to know what that's like. But there is an invitation for you to meet with the living God who has shed abroad his love in our hearts when we place our faith in his son. And I'm going to pray with us just now. But some of us here today may feel like you're brimming over with the love of God. It's just like bubbling up inside of you and you feel his love intimately and powerfully and it just overflows from your life to others. And others of us may have had a time when we remember when God poured out his love in our hearts. But the grind of life, the, the disappointments, the times when we have given into sin have just slowly dulled our experience of God's love. Wherever you find yourself today, God wants to give you more. He wants you to have more of his Holy Spirit and to supernaturally pour more of his love into your heart. Do you want that? More of his love. I'm going to end with this verse, Romans 8, because I want to tell you that if you don't feel very loved, this verse is for you. What does it say? Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. What should, then shall we say of these things? If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not even spare his only begotten eternal son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I'm going to just skip down and it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Maybe you're thinking something's going to stop me from knowing the love of God. But it says, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, and I'm speaking this over all of us today, that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor your future, nor Earth, or nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation. Basically, nothing is another way of saying it. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want to pray this morning for our hearts to be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow him to pour out his love into our hearts. So I'm going to pray for us. And I wonder, Johnny, do you think we could sing Good, Good Father? I think uh, when I've prayed, because I think that verse, that song just so encapsulates the heart of this. Because I want every single one of us to go home today and be able to say of ourselves, our identity, I am loved. And to know and experience that love. Some, for some of you, things are tough, and you're thinking, well, why does God allow me to go through these tough things? Remember those words, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and it's the kind of hope that is not going to let you down, it's not going to shame you, it's going to help you understand and see his glory and his purpose and his goodness to you. There is nothing, even your hard times, that can separate you from his love.